I was growing up, I remember having, there was a sign in our house that we'd see all the time. And it said, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And saw that uh, growing up. It's, it might still be there. I'll have to look the next time I'm, I'm home. But that is uh, not just a great sentiment, but that is a great part of uh, this chapter, Joshua 24. As we finish the book of Joshua, and just great that we are able to focus on, on God's faithfulness once again. That is such a key theme to the book of Joshua. Ultimately, this is not a book about battles and, and warfare and conquering cities. Uh, it's, it's been part of this. But underlying this is a message not even just about us and our need to choose to serve the Lord and what we need to do, uh, but it's about God. The Bible is about God, and the primary thing here is that he is a faithful God. He makes promises. He keeps those promises. He can be depended on. You can count on him. You can build your life on him, and we need to do that. We need to choose to follow him and to build our life on the Lord. So the message today, choose this day whom you will serve, and we will work our way through the passage, and we'll especially spend time in that uh, second section that has those key verses. But let's start first uh, 13 verses here. And in these verses, we are going to see that Joshua reminds Israel, okay, God's people here, the Hebrews, of what the Lord has done for them. And he gives an overview of history. So if you haven't been here, if you, uh, your Old Testament, haven't spent a lot of time, it's a great recap, a divinely inspired recap of what God has done for them. So let's read 1 through 13 to start this off. So Joshua gathered all the tribes of Israel to Shechem, and some of the elders, the heads, the judges, and the officers of Israel, and they presented themselves before God. And Joshua said to all the people, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel. Which, by the way, notice here he's saying, Thus says the Lord. So this is not just Joshua's speech here. Uh, this is going into proclamation from uh, the Lord. This is prophecy. We're going to see that this, he goes into first person, uh, the Lord speaking through Joshua here, recounting what the Lord has done for them. So verse 2, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Long ago your fathers lived beyond the Euphrates, beyond the Euphrates River. Terah, the father of Abraham and of Nahor, and they served other gods. Then I took your father Abraham from beyond the river and led him through all the land of Canaan and made his offspring many. And I gave him Isaac. And to Isaac I gave Jacob and Esau. And I gave Esau the hill country of Seir to possess. But Jacob and his children went down to Egypt. And I sent Moses and Aaron. And I plagued Egypt with what I did in the midst of it. And afterwards I brought you out. Let's pause here for a little bit. We've had quite a bit of biblical history that has been covered in just these verses here. But notice it starts way back and it talks about Abraham. And originally his name was Abram. God changed it to, to Abraham when he said, I'm going to make you the father of, of many. I'm going to build you into this great nation. Even though he didn't have kids at all at this point, God said, well, we're going we're gonna to fulfill that. We'll take care of that even though you're past childbearing age. It was a miraculous thing. But notice, he's calling them out of this, the paganism and the idol worship that they were in when they lived beyond the Euphrates River uh, in, a, in a distant place. 
And sometimes we have this mindset, we think, oh, Abraham, he's this, this great guy, and you know, he must have been living in this society that maybe they were terrible, but somehow God saw some good in Abraham. And so God you know, picked him because he saw this good in his heart. I think when we look at this and what we see, if we went back in time and saw what Abraham was doing before God called him, he was probably bowing down and worshiping these, these pagan idols, these false gods, just like everyone else. And that he was not seeking after the Lord. He was part of this and just a part of his culture. There's no indication that God picked him because of some special thing that is in him. God called him out of this. God is the one that took the initiative. We're going to see in these passages, this is the Lord saying, I did this. I did this. God is the one that uh, fights the battles. God is the one that takes the initiative. He called Abraham out of this idolatry and this worship. And he moved in his heart as he called him so that Abraham did respond. And he responded from his heart, but God was the one working in and through him to do this. God was taking the initiative. And God gives him this promise. He's going to make a great nation out of him. He doesn't have children. He finally gives him uh, Isaac in his old age. That's not much of a great nation yet. That's one. God is working, but, you know, God doesn't work on our timetable. We want to snap our fingers and have everything instantly. Uh, sometimes God fulfills his promises in a way that it takes time to do this. But God comes through. And just because God isn't working as fast as you want him to work doesn't mean that God is not working. He, is, he will fulfill his promises in his time and in his way. So you have Isaac, and then there's Jacob and, and Esau. Still not quite a great nation yet. But then they get sent down to Egypt, and they're preserved there. Uh, they get forced into slavery, but while they're down there, they're also protected from being just wiped out by some roaming tribe that could have wiped them off the face of the earth. And they, they multiply, and then there's, there's millions of them. Uh, but they get put into slavery, and God brings them out of this with the, the plagues of Egypt that he sent and brought them out. Verse 6, Then I brought your fathers out of Egypt, and you came to the sea, and the Egyptians pursued your fathers with chariots and horsemen to the Red Sea. And when they cried to the Lord, he put darkness between you and the Egyptians and made the sea come upon them and cover them. He parts the Red Sea after giving them time to get through, and then the waters crash down, and the Hebrews are saved, and the Egyptians are, uh, are destroyed. And your eyes saw what I did in Egypt. Then you lived in the wilderness a long time. There are 40 years of wandering. Then I brought you to the land of the Amorites. Notice he keeps saying, I did this, I did this. I brought you to the lands of the Amorites who live on the other side of the Jordan. And they fought with you. And I gave them into your hand. And you took possession of their land. And I destroyed them before you. Then Balak, the son of Zephor, king of Moab, arose and fought against Israel. And he sent and invited Balaam, the son of Beor, to curse you. And so they hired this, this uh, prophet for hire to come and issue this curse. But God even thwarted that. He wouldn't let him put the curses upon them. Verse 10, but I would not listen to Balaam. Indeed, he blessed you. He, he reversed what was the intention. So they were blessed and said, so I delivered you out of his hand. And you went over the Jordan and came to Jericho. This was earlier this summer at the beginning of the book of, of Joshua. They finally, they crossed the Jordan River into the promised land. It says, And the leaders of Jericho fought against you, and also the Amorites and the Perizzites and the Canaanites and the Hittites and the Girgashites and the Hivites and the Jebusites. 
and I gave them into your hand. And I sent the hornet before you, which drove them out before you, the two kings of the Amorites. It was not by your sword or your bow. Just, we keep seeing here, notice the Lord is saying, I did this, I did this. He's reminding them, you have achieved this, you have, but don't start thinking that this was your strength. Don't start thinking this was, this was all you. Don't forget the one that got you here. God is the one that, that did this. He is the one that deserves the credit for it. It is so easy for us when there are successes, when there are accomplishments, and at the time we realize the Lord is helping us through this, but then to get to this place where we forget who brought us here, that we forget that it was the Lord and only by his power that we were able to make it through these different things. And we need to remember this. This isn't the Lord being arrogant in a wrongful way. It is good for the Lord to remind them that he is the one that did this. He has been faithful to them because the best thing for them is to continue to be, remember that the Lord is faithful, to continue to depend on him and not their own strength to depend on the Lord for the strength that they need, to still do their part and do what they need to do. And that's what we need to do as well. All these nations, they should not have been able to defeat these nations. It was unrealistic. It was, humanly speaking, impossible. But it happened because the Lord was with them. It says there, I sent the hornet before you, which drove them out before you. That's a little bit, kind of a cryptic thing. What does that mean, you know, exactly? Um, were there literal hornets that the Lord sent? Uh, could be, but it also could be just a reference. You think what hornets represent. Think about this. If uh, my daughter is out on the back porch and a hornet comes by, she is going to be terrified. She probably doesn't like me talking about this right now. She does not like wasps and hornets. Uh, I think no kids do. And so I think it's um, maybe a way of saying the Lord sent his terror you know, before him. And we saw that in Joshua. They got terrified by the Hebrews because they knew that the Lord is with them. He's coming, and uh, how do we stand against somebody, you know, a people that have the Lord on their side? It says, it was not by your sword or your bow. Although they used them, they had to do part of it. They had to do their part, but it was the Lord ultimately that was at work. And in verse 13, I gave you a land on which you had not labored and cities that you had not built, and you dwelt in them. We saw there were only a few cities that they completely destroyed. Most of those, they drove out the people and they were able to just kind of take over the cities and, and to live in them. But these were given as like a gift to them. You know, they didn't build these things. They didn't work to have these things. The Lord gave them to them. You know, the same way that the salvation, everything that God gives to us is by his grace. It is a gift. And we need to remember that. You eat the fruits of their vineyards and the olive orchards, that you did not plant. So in this section, we see this history lesson. We see this reminder about God's faithfulness. He is the one that has been working. And you know, God doesn't change. If he's been working and if God is, has been faithful to his promises, then it's the same God today. And he is going to continue to be faithful to us and the promises that he has for us as well. The credit goes to the Lord. That's the first section there. I want to look at verses 14 through 18. I'll spend a little bit more time kind of unpacking this, thinking about these truths. And in these verses, Joshua implores them to choose to serve the Lord. So God has been faithful. He has done all these things. And there is an appropriate response that we need to have to not forget about him, 
to not go and serve other gods or live our lives for, for other things or other uh, the, the shiny, nice things around us, but to actually live for the Lord, to choose to serve him, to choose to, to worship him. So let's read this section together, 14 through 18. Now, therefore, so this is the application part of this. What's the response to what God has done? Now, therefore, fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and in faithfulness. Put away the gods that your father served beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. And if it is evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, choose this day whom you will serve, whether the gods your father served in the region beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Then the people answered, Far be it from us that we should forsake the Lord to serve other gods. For it is the Lord our God who brought us and our fathers up from the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, and who put and who did those great signs in our sight and preserved us in all the ways that we went and among all the peoples through whom we passed. And the Lord drove out before us all the peoples, the Amorites who lived in the land. Therefore also we Therefore, also, therefore, we also will serve the Lord, for he is our God. So we see in the first paragraph this call to serve the Lord as this appropriate response. And then the second paragraph, we see the people respond and say, yes, we get it. We will serve the Lord. And there's a little more after this, uh, but I want to talk about this, and especially uh, those key verses, which are 14 and 15. And I have those in your, in your, um, in your outline, because I want you to do something. Let's look at these verses, and there's something that is just repeated here. And if you have a pen or pencil, I'd like you just, just to underline. You know, when God inspires Scripture to be written in a way that something is repeated, you can tell that, hmm, it seems like this might be a kind of a main theme here. And I think this is really the heart of this whole chapter. So let's look at this again. Now, therefore, fear the Lord. Okay, it's a proper type of fear that we should have. This isn't, I'm scared and run away from the Lord. But this is the kind of, this is healthy respect. He is the one that we respect. He is the one that is, there is a proper heaviness. We don't just blow him off like he's inconsequential. That we, we care about his opinion. We care about doing right in his eyes. That's the fear of the Lord. So fear the Lord and serve him. I will have you underline the word serve there. And serve him in sincerity and in faithfulness not in a way that's fake, not in a way that is here today and God tomorrow, but, but serving him. Put away the gods that your fathers served beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. So I'm going to have you underline the times that it says serve here. You're going to see that there's seven of them. So you've got to put away these other gods. You can't serve the Lord and serve and worship these other gods too. That it's a choice, either, either God or these other ones. Don't think that you can do both. If you're trying to do both, if you're trying to worship these other gods, you are not serving the Lord. You're not worshiping him. He demands worship for him be exclusive. He demands that it is for him and it it is just for him. And that's appropriate for God to demand this. So if you're going to say, I'm going to worship and love these other things and worship and serve them, you're not serving the Lord, even if you claim that you are. 
So part of it, you've got to not just come to the Lord, but you've got to come away from, you've got to put away these other things, these other gods that they were living for. Uh, the ones, whether it was beyond the river, in a context, it's probably talking about the river Euphrates. Remember back with uh, uh, you know, Abraham and uh, way back when they lived beyond there and they worshipped these Babylonian gods, you know, Marduk and all these. Uh, not those gods. Also not the gods of Egypt. You spent time there and they had all their Egyptian gods. You're not serving them. You know, get those out. If you have an actual uh, you know, memorabilia or a little set, you've got to get rid of them and get them out of your heart as well. And now the Amorites, the people in Canaan, they have their gods. Baal and all these uh, uh, different Moloch and all these, you're not worshiping them. Get rid of them as well too. There's all kinds of these different gods. There's a whole assortment out there. But you're not worshiping them. You've got to put those away. And it said, serve the Lord. And he says, but what if it's evil in your eyes to serve the Lord? And think of that. What it, that's something to ponder. If it's evil in your eyes to serve the Lord. I'm not a lot of people admit and say, well, you know, it's, it's evil. It seems like a bad thing in my eyes to serve the Lord, although some people do. I realize a lot of people, they don't want to serve the Lord. They don't want to come to him. And maybe they want to, or maybe they'll say it aloud, maybe they don't, but they realize it looks like a bad thing. If I come and I submit my life to the Lord, to Jesus, uh, that uh, that's going to change things in my life. That I'm going to have to give up a lot of things that I love doing. You know, there's a lot of fun sin that's out there in the world. And some people, they don't want to serve the Lord. They don't want to come to him because they realize that coming to him means that there's going to need to be you know, changes. That there's things that God says are right and wrong that are different than what we sometimes want to do. And some people, it is evil in their eyes to serve the Lord because they think it's going to wreck their fun. Or they think it's evil in their eyes because, man, this is gonna this is gonna take down my social status. Because uh, you know maybe people at work or in the office or at the the site they're gonna find out that I'm a they can call me a Bible thumper or whatever and or they're gonna think I'm intolerant or you know and it's it's not gonna help my social capital. Maybe a few decades ago, you know, whenever more of society was pretending to be Christians. It may have been more advantageous for me to pretend I'm a Christian too, to be kind of in with them. But now more, pe- more and more people are just you know, denying Christ or not pretending to be Christians at all. And so there's really no advantages in it for me. And so, yeah, it doesn't seem like a good idea for me to, to serve the Lord. So realize, you know, this is a choice that we need to make. And Joshua is telling them, hey, if it doesn't seem like a good thing in your eyes to choose the Lord, you still got to choose who you are going to serve. And you need to choose, and you need to choose now. This isn't something that you just get to the end of your life and look back and, oh, what did I do or not do? We have to make a choice. We have to decide this. And of all the options that we have, you're going to serve someone. Don't just think that you can not serve anyone. Not, I don't worship anyone. There's always someone that we're going to serve. Let me get to the end of this section here, and then I'll have a few more comments. Again, he tells them there's, there's options. The world here has lots of options on who you potentially could serve, whether the gods your father served in the region beyond the river, the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, Joshua's saying, this is my decision. This is a decision for me and my family. 
we will serve the Lord. So he's saying, I can't, I can't absolutely make this decision for you. I want you to. I want to implore you to this. This is the right thing to do, but it's something that you need to choose. But he's saying, but I'm making that decision for me, and those that are part of my house, those are the ones that are in my influence, we are going to be a household that we serve the Lord. I serve the Lord, and I'm bringing along with me uh, those that are in my influence, that are in my home for this. So we see this <coughs> theme of, of serve or serving. And it, it's not just um, you know, doing nice things for God, serving him in that way. We, we talk about serving each other. This is the type of serving that is, is worshiping. This word here in uh, Hebrew also has the idea of, of, of being a servant, almost being uh, enslaved or in, in bondage. You know, who are we serving in that sense? That we are, he is our master, he is our Lord, he is the one that we serve, he is the one that, that we worship and we, we bow down to. And it's used seven times in these verses. In the whole chapter, it's used 18 times. So this huge emphasis on who we're serving. You have to choose your God or your gods. And you can either choose the true God, capital G, the Lord, the Lord of the Bible, or you're going to choose something else. You're going to choose some kind of false gods. And maybe you're not tempted to worship you know, Babylonian deities or Egyptian uh, you know, gods, some god with a you know, statue with the head of a cat or something like that. But all of us make decisions on what will be God in our life and what ultimately we are bowing down to, what ultimately is the Lord of our life and what we are serving. And so we think of this phrase, uh, choose this day whom you will serve. And so it is a choice. It is something that you have to make. You can go one way or you can go the other way. This calls for a decision. And notice he's telling him this is not something that you put off. Uh, <clears throat> you know, even, this is one of those decisions where even if you think you're not making a decision, you're making a decision. Every day that you are choosing not to serve the Lord, you're not just remaining neutral, okay? Every day that you're doing that, you are, you're, you're choosing not to serve the Lord. And you're choosing against the Lord every day that you're not choosing the Lord. So you're always making a decision no matter what. So don't think this is something that you, you put off. And yep, there might be things that you're thinking through that you're learning about. Uh, there may be questions. Okay, that's good. But still realize every day that you are not choosing to serve the Lord, you are choosing not to serve the Lord. And there will be consequences for that. There's going to be, it sets you down this trajectory of life. This is a decision that should not be put off the gods that you will serve. So there's all these multiple sets of gods. And it reminds us that we all serve someone. In surveys these days, uh, more and more people are being described as, when it says, what is your religion? More and more people are being described as nuns. And that is not nun in the sense of like a Catholic nun, but none as far as they mark none as far as religion. And I think it's not really uh, as much of a sign that Christianity is, uh, that genuine Christianity is uh, going away, but I think it is a sign that it is, there's less social benefit 
to claiming to be a Christian when you're not. That I think there used to be a time where everyone claimed to be a Christian, even if they weren't, because there were certain perks. Uh, it helped you along in society. And that's no longer the case. Uh, and there are some unfortunate things about that, but there are also some good things. You end up with less people faking this for the wrong reason. But some people, they claim that they're just, well, I, I have no God, I have no religion. I, have, I don't worship anyone, I don't serve anyone. Or people claim, I, I just believe in science. But ultimately, you're serving someone. Ultimately, you have someone that you are bowing the knee to, something that you are bowing the knee to. There's all these options. And today, it might be that you are, you're bowing the knee ultimately to, to money or to your success, to your, to your work. Uh, maybe it's some, you know, hobby that you have or some activity. Some of it, it could even be your family. You know, your family is a good thing. God wants you to make it a priority, but if that's your ultimate thing, then even that can become an idol, something that we're worshiping and serving instead of the Lord. There's so many of these things. So many people really ultimately what they're worshiping is their own social image. You know, what do people think of them? What are people going to think of them at, on Facebook or online or in the community? A lot of people today, they worship, uh, you know, political factions on the right or on the left or social causes. I think today, social causes, for many, have replaced religion. Everyone has this desire deep down to, to worship, to serve, to um, uh, pay homage. And for so many people, whether it's uh, critical race theory or global warming or you pick whatever on the right or on the left, some of these people, they make this their cause. This is what they live for. This is what they, they try to find atonement uh, through the right sacrifices to these things. And for some people, it's, well, you've got to, um, you know, find somebody online that said something wrong 15 years ago so you can uh, basically sacrifice them as an offering to your social cause. But we are all wired to worship and to be worshipers. And you are going to pick something that is your God, something that you are worshiping. What is it that you have chosen? Is it the true God, the God of the Bible? Is it yourself? So many people, they live for themselves. They are their own God. They are their own idol. And they look in the mirror and they live for their self-esteem and their own glory. Or are you living for the real God that is there? Not some God of your imagination, something that you have cobbled together, you have concocted. Choose who are you really going to serve, to fear, to live for. And notice what it says here, the Lord, this is, our scripture puts this all in capitals. This is Yahweh. This is not just whatever God you want this to be. This is the God that revealed himself in the Bible to Abraham, to the, the fathers, to, to Moses. You're either choosing the God of the Bible or you're choosing a false God. And notice he says, me and my household, we will serve the Lord. I love this. Like I said, I grew up with a, seeing that on a plaque. And maybe it's something, you know, if your ladies are looking for an arts and crafts thing, it might be a great thing for, for a home addition. You, know, you can't choose for your family to make them saved. I kind of wish we could. You know, we could just decide for our kids, you know, that, okay, you have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ because I've decided it. And, and you're saved, you're good. And we'd love it if we could do that, um, but we can't. But you can lead your family 
like Joshua led his household. And I think you can also declare that, hey, under this roof, we're going to serve the Lord. You know, that is going to be the, the law of this household. We are going to point in this direction. And eventually, yep, kids, you have to make your own decision. And you're either going to, you know, choose the, hopefully the faith of your fathers and those that came before you and continue, and you decide to serve the Lord because you have to make that choice. Or you're going to choose something else and to live for the things of the world and the things that your friends and everyone else lives after. But I think within the home, we can decide that we are going to be a household that serves the Lord. We're going to live by his commands. We're going to value him. And the way, parents, that you lead your house and the way that you lead your children, husbands, the way that you lead and influence your wife is going to make a huge difference. And it's going to decide if they are raised in a way that they continue to serve the Lord when they have to make that decision and choose him. And you know, it starts with you. It starts with parents. We see in Joshua here, he led by example. Joshua here, he was leading from the front. He was going first and saying, I'm making a decision, I'm doing this, me and my household, who is with me? So parents, and especially dad, you need to be the ones to do this, to lead and to lead by example. You know, the parents are put in this leadership role, and there is also something very strategic, especially about dad, okay? And I know we live in a world that is, that is broken, and not all families have mom and dad or have them together, but the ideal situation, you have mom and dad, you're together, you're raising your kids for the Lord, and I know this is not viewed as popular in society, but God views dad as the head of the house. And God has wired your family so that there is a special influence that dad has. And that influence is going to be true, dads, whether you decide to live for the Lord and make him your number one. It's also going to be true if you decide not to. If you decide to be cool to the Lord and really kind of let that be something that, well, that's for the rest of the family or that's kind of mom's thing, your kids are going to pick up on this. And they're going to pick up from you what's really important. And they're going to follow after you. There's a statistic that gets quoted a lot. And I don't, don't know exactly where it came from. But I think in uh, experience, it's very true. This statistic talks about if you have a family that is not a Christian family. Okay? And there's mom, dad, and there's kids. And they, they don't go to church. They're not a Christian family. If mom in that family becomes a believer, a genuine Christian, the statistical odds that the rest of the family follows and becomes believers is 17%. If you have the same family and dad is the one that becomes a genuine believer in Jesus Christ, the odds that the rest of the family follows is 93%. Praise God for those times where through a a godly influence of mom or sometimes both parents aren't Christians, but the kids are reached through friends or one way or another, youth group. Praise God when that happens. But God has wired families in a way that just naturally the kids and and mom as well too are going to follow the lead of dad. And we try to deny that in our society, but we're, we're wired in that way. And so dads, this gives you just an increased level of responsibility. It's not just you and your personal relationship and whether you blow it off. It's going to have an effect on your family for bad or for very much good. If you show that this is where your heart is at, 
This is who you are committed to, the Lord. And live that out in a way that your family is going to see that. I mean, that's true for both mom and dad. You know, let them see you that you are worshiping. You know, let them see you in church. Let them see you, you pray. Yeah, there's times where you want to pray in secret, but there's times you want the family to know. You want the kids to know that the praying is a good thing. Mom and dad do that. Dad does this. It is a manly thing to pray to the Lord. Let them see you reading the Bible. Let them see you doing devotions. Let them see you serving the Lord, reaching out to other people, giving up your time. Let them see you worshiping God from your heart. You want to work on your relationship with your kids. You know, the more leadership that you have, the more pull you're going to have with those around you, you're going to have it better the more that you have a relationship with them. You're not just off doing your distant thing. See me at a distance worshiping the Lord. But you have a relationship with your kids. You're bringing them along with you. You have this so they can, you have this connection. Communicate with your family, with your kids. Teach them. Give expectations that in our family, hey, we do things different. Yeah, at your friend's house, they may do these things, but that may be because they have not decided to serve the Lord. And so, yeah, there's things we do and things we don't do, and it's because we've chosen that our household, we are going to serve the Lord. And your commitments are going to show where your heart is at. You can say all kinds of different things, but your kids are going to read into what they see your actual commitments are, especially when there's a rub, when you have to choose one thing over maybe another thing that's good, maybe another thing that would be fine, but you are choosing the Lord and what you need to do. There's times where you realize you're going to need to make church a priority and think through other opportunities as well. You know, Sunday school, youth group on Wednesdays for the kids, these things. You know, what is their priority level? Do they get trumped at the drop of a hat? Or is this something that the kids are going to grow up realizing this was really important to us as a family because God is the most important thing? I think our, our giving. You know, we... With COVID, we stopped passing the plate. We have the collection box in the back, and the church has been really faithful in giving, and we're very thankful for that. Giving is another way to communicate to your kids that we are a household that serves the Lord. I would suggest, you know, as you give your tithes and offerings each week, maybe it's something that you have the kids be the ones to put it in. You know, not just their own, you know, uh, you know quarters and, and pennies. That can be a good thing to train them to, but to give also the family money and help it sink into them that, yeah, you know what this means? We give money and maybe give them even kind of an idea that it's, you know, more than just a few bucks. And it's going to sink into them, you know what? Yeah, there's other things we could be doing if we had that money. You know, we could buy this new TV. We could do this. We could, you know, have this extra online service. You know. But it's communicating to them that we would, we value the Lord so much that we're willing to do without some of these things because we want God to be glorified and we want to support the work of the church and the work of missionaries. And I say this not to, you know, guilt you about, you know, offerings. We're, I, I'm thankful for the church's faithfulness. But use it as an opportunity with your kids to teach them to serve the Lord and that you're a household that serves the Lord. Serving together, there's opportunities so often where things you can do as a family, whether it's something formally in church, or otherwise just reaching out to people around you, people that are hurting, and doing that with your kids. 
doing it as a family to make this decision. We think about making this decision to choose the Lord. Is this something that is a once and done thing? The way that it is written in Hebrew shows that it's a continuous action. It's something that is you continue to do. Maybe you've heard the, uh, the story of the, the chicken and the pig. That they were, the chicken and the pig were going along and they saw a church sign that said, consider how you could help the poor. And the chicken and the pig thought about this. And the chicken said to the pig, I have an idea how we could help the poor. Let's, together, me and you, we will provide the, the poor with an uh, eggs and ham breakfast. That'd be a nice thing. And the pig turns to the chicken and says, hey, wait a second. Uh, for you, that's just a contribution. Uh, the pig says, but for me, that's a total commitment. <laughs> you know, God isn't looking just for you to make a little, a little contribution here. God wants a full commitment. He wants you to be a living sacrifice unto him. So it means to choose to serve the Lord. Let's keep going here. Then we think, well, this is a great ending here. We'll keep this. And they're saying, yeah, we will serve the Lord. The next thing we're going to see in this passage, Joshua tries to talk him out of it. What is going on here? So 19 through 28, Joshua tells them they're not able to serve the Lord. We have to understand what's going on here. So verse 19, But Joshua said to the people, You are not able to serve the Lord, for he is a holy God. He is a jealous God, and he will not forgive your transgressions or your sins. If you forsake the Lord and serve foreign gods, then he will turn and do you harm and consume you after having done you good. And the people said to Joshua, No, but we will serve the Lord. And Joshua said to the people, you are witnesses against yourselves that you have chosen the Lord to serve him. And they said, we are witnesses. And he said to them, put away the foreign gods that are among you and incline your hearts to the Lord, the God of Israel. And the people said to Joshua, the Lord our God we will serve and his voice we will obey. So Joshua made a covenant with the people that day, literally cut a covenant, with the people that day and put in place statutes and rules for them at Shechem. And Joshua wrote the words in the book of the law of God and he took a large stone and set it up there under the Kibberinth that was by the sanctuary of the Lord. And Joshua said to all the people, Behold, this stone shall be a witness against us for it has heard all the words that the Lord of the Lord that he spoke to us Therefore, it shall be a witness against you, lest you deal falsely with your God. So Joshua sent the people away, every man to his inheritance. So Joshua gets to this response, and instead of saying, great, let's uh, you know, just close the deal here, he, he tries to talk them out of it. And what he's doing, he's getting them, well, at least to count the costs. And let's face it, so many times, I think we have so many, I think what ended up being false believers, because they were, uh, talked into some kind of easy, you know, you just choose the Lord. Don't worry, just uh, don't think about it too much. Just come and, and, and serve the Lord. And they don't realize what it all involves. You know, coming to the Lord, yeah, he forgives us. He forgives us as we are. He forgives us because of Christ. But we are also coming under his lordship, and it is going to make a change. The Holy Spirit is going to come and start changing us from the inside out. You can't just go on living the life the way that you've always, always lived it. 
by his grace and mercy, God is going to start to change you. And so it's good for people to realize, to count the costs ahead of time, to know what this really involves, rather than just arm-twisting people. You know, or, um, you know, if we wanted in VBS, we could have got every kid there to um, come to Christ. You know, if we offered enough cheese balls and candy, if they would just repeat after us, you know, you can get some kind of arm-twisted, false profession, but we want it to be the real thing where they really understand and they're genuinely coming to the Lord. He tells them that this is because God is a jealous God, that they have to put away these other gods. You know, it's like, for those of you that are married, when you got married and you said yes to your husband or your wife, you were not only saying yes to them, but you were saying no to everyone else. When I married my wife and said yes to her, I was saying no to every other woman. Sorry, ladies. <laughs> you know, <laughs> some of you are not too broken up about that. <laughs> but that's what we need to do with the Lord. We're saying yes to him and we're saying no to every other false god that is out there. Also something I want to realize, he's telling him you can't serve the Lord. And there is really truth to that. And when we look later, we see that so many they didn't. We see what happened in the book of Judges. It doesn't really go well for every generation here. This is very short-lived. And there really is a sense where he says, you, you can't choose to serve the Lord. You're being called to do it. You ought to do it. But there's also a sense where you can't. And I really mean that. I mean that literally. Let me ask, is it fair for God to ask us or to command us to do something that we are not able to do? Is it right for him to judge us to do something we're not able to do? I would say that it depends what you mean. I remember when my son Luke was little, uh, I'm going to embarrass you here, uh, he came in and to, we're sitting at the table and he comes in and he's all mad. Okay, he's like, ah, ah. We're like, Luke, what's, what's going on? He's like, ah, ah, it's not working. Ah. And what's not working? Ah, I'm not becoming the Hulk. Ah, ah. <laughs> he was trying to make himself mad so he turned into the Hulk. <laughs> we thought that was hilarious. Um, there are certain things that we can't do because you have a natural inability to do it. You're physically not able Okay, and if God said, I command you, you, you have to turn into the Hulk or I'm going to judge you. And well, you, you can't do that. If he said, I'm gonna, if you don't turn invisible, I am going to condemn you to hell. Well, you, you, that's not something that you can do. But that's natural ability, physical ability. But there's another type of inability, which is moral inability. An inability that comes from the heart. And it is appropriate for God to hold us responsible for that kind of inability. If you can't do good things for others because your heart is so selfish that you actually can't do it because of your sin and the ugliness and selfishness, it makes sense for God to judge us for that. And if the reason that you don't come to the Lord is because there's so much sin and ugliness and hatred in your heart, in the core of your being, it makes sense for God to hold us responsible for that because our heart is the core of who we are. But the good news is that God changes our hearts. Again, he is the one that is at work. He is the one that takes initiative. And for those of us that are saved, we look back the same way that Joshua and them, they look back and they realize it was the Lord that did this. 
there's part that we play, okay, but ultimately it's the Lord working in and through us, and he gets the credit for all the victories and for our salvation. And one thing that's taught throughout the Old Testament with all these laws is that ultimately that is not the way that you're going to get saved. Salvation can't come from law-keeping because our hearts are too wicked. And said, we need a Savior that kept the law in our place and who died on the cross and rose again as our substitute. And that's why Jesus came to save us by grace. Trust in him with your heart full of faith. And at the very end here, Joshua dies as a servant of the Lord. Conclude with these words. And after these things, Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died, being 110 years old. And they buried him in his own inheritance at Timorah which is in the hill country of Ephraim, north of the mountain of Gash. And Israel served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua and had known all the works that the Lord had did for Israel. As for the bones of Joseph, which the people of Israel brought up from Egypt, they buried them at Shechem in the piece of land that Jacob brought from the sons of Hamor, the father of Shechem, for a hundred pieces of money. It became an inheritance of the descendants of Joseph. See God's faithfulness here. Josh, or Joseph didn't want to be buried in Egypt. Bring my bones. You bury me in the promised land. And it happened because God delivered. He keeps his promises. And Eliezer, the son of Aaron, died. And they buried him at Gib- Gibeah, the town of Phineas, his son, which had been given him in the hill country of Ephraim. And this was the end of a, a chapter and era for, for them. But the thing I want to point out, notice how it says that Joshua dies. It says that he was a servant of the Lord. One day you will pass from this earth. What do you want said about you? Oh, he was great at golf. Oh, he really loved this college team. Oh, he really was great in business or this or that. Or do you want it said of you first and foremost? You were a servant of the Lord. You loved him with your whole heart. I pray that's true. Let's pray. Lord God, we come before you. We give you our praise. Lord, work in our hearts to help us to deliver our hearts and our lives to you, Lord God. You are the one that has been at work. You are the one that saved us and it is by your grace. And in response, we want to serve you. We want to serve you wholly as living sacrifices to you because you alone are worthy of this. We praise you for your faithfulness. We praise you for your grace. Walk with us each day. And in you, may we be strong and courageous. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen.